Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 726. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show, a grand show. We have the main fiction, which is Dwindling by Rudy Venner. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, the main fiction, Dwindling by Rudy Venner, is an original to Starship Sofa. I'll give you a little heads up about Rudy. Rudy Venner is a retired software engineer and the author of several short stories that have appeared in Sci-Fi Shorts Online magazine. He has been shortlisted for the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award and been selected multiple times as a finalist and as a winner in the Tassie Walden Awards for New Voices in Children's Literature, a statewide literary competition in Connecticut. A cheese lover and former online pizza marketing entrepreneur, he is hard at work on more short stories and his latest novel. Now, this story is narrated by Dan Rabarts. Dan, oh, years ago, Dan, proves how we're getting on. Dan was kind of involved in the show and doing lots for Starships over in the kind of early days. And it's, Dan, it's lovely to kind of see you back still, you know, still plugging away there. So I'll give you a little heads up about Dan. Dan Rabarts is an award-winning author and editor living in New Zealand, four-time recipient of the New Zealand's Julius Sir Julius Vogel Award and three-time winner of the Australian Shadows Award. Dan's science fiction, dark fantasy and horror stories have been published in numerous venues worldwide. Together with Lee Murray, he co-wrote the Path of Raw crime noir thriller series, The Hounds of the Underworld, 
Teeth of the Wolf and Blood of the Sun, and co-edited the anthologies Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized, Tales of Terror, and At the Edge. He narrated fiction for Starship Silver, Tales to Terrify, Pseudopod, and Beneath Sister Skies podcast, amongst others. And he produced and co-narrated the audiobook for the first Path of Ra novel. So, Starship Silver is very proud to present... Dwindling by Rudy Veneer, read by Dan Raybarts. Minnow shifted his flint-tipped spear from his left to right shoulder. Trudging over the soggy ground beside his best friend Squirrel, he searched the rolling plains for any sign of mammoths. There were none. This was so unfair. How were he and Squirrel supposed to earn their hunting names if they couldn't help bring down one of the enormous beasts? Minnow's boots squished in the mud and his soaking wet leggings clung to his legs. Sweating in the unusually warm weather, he let out a huff of annoyance, untied the front of his rabbit fur jacket and let it hang open. He glanced at the deep blue sky where only a few wispy clouds drifted. It hadn't rained in days, so why was the ground so wet? Squirrel marched along beside him, using the butt of his spear as a walking stick. He looked as miserable as Minnow felt. The two boys, now in their twelfth season, and the youngest members of the hunting party, kept to the rear, following wherever many spears the hunt leader led them. Right now, this was up a low hill. At the top, everyone paused and scanned the surrounding grassland. Not that Minnow could see much grass. Mostly, it was mud. The little grass that was visible was beaten down into the soggy ground. Even on the hilltops the drooping stalks were heavy with water and lay limp and flat. Far off to the north the blinding white ice mountains stretched across the horizon. Minnow scanned the rolling ground falling away below them. Still no sign of the giant mammoths. Nothing moved in this sodden landscape. Many spears squinted up at the sun. We will go west, he said. We will search until the sun has travelled the width of my two hands across the sky. Then, if we still have found no mammoth, we will return to our tribe and say that we must move our camp farther west to continue the search. Minnow exchanged a disappointed glance with Squirrel. How did many spears expect to find the mammoths if they gave up so soon? But Minnow kept his mouth shut. This was his and Squirrel's first mammoth hunt. He knew better than to make any suggestions or even offer an opinion until he earned his true hunter's name. Why not return now? asked Ribbreaker, many spears' closest friend. Even if we find the mammoth, we will still have to move the entire camp to be near enough for a hunt. Yes, said many spears, but it would be better if we can say we have seen the mammoths. In the swamp! Ribbreaker snorted. We would be lucky to find one sunk in over its head with its trunk sticking up out of the mud. The older hunters laughed. Then Ribbreaker added, We would do better to scout for red elk to the south instead of mammoth. Folly! Tusk Dancer spoke up sharply. We could never hunt enough elk to feed the whole tribe. We could if we hunted in many pairs instead of one large hunting party argued Ribbreaker. 
Many hunters are needed to defend themselves against the fang cats, said Tusk Dancer. Two hunters can handle a fang cat, said Ribbreaker. Even one, if he is smart and careful. We should forget about mammoth and hunt red elk. Minnow gaped at Ribbreaker in dismay. How would he and Squirrel earn their hunter names if they didn't help kill a mammoth? Forgetting proper behaviour, Minnow opened his mouth to speak. A sharp elbow in his side from Squirrel and a hard glare from many spears reminded him. Minnow tightened his lips and looked at the ground. Enough, said many spears. This is not the time to argue for hunting elk. This is the time to search for mammoth. There were nods of agreement among the hunters, and as they trudged down the hill, Minnow and Squirrel resumed their place at the rear. Don't worry, Minnow, said Squirrel. I'm sure we'll find the mammoth herd today, or maybe tomorrow. We better, said Minnow. He shouldered his spear once more and slogged down the slick slope after the other hunters. We will sooner or later, said Squirrel. I'm not worried. You should be, said Minnow. Do you want to be called Squirrel when you're an old man of twenty seasons? It's better than Minnow, said Squirrel, grinning at him. Minnow sighed and squelched on after the hunting party. The rest of the day they slogged through mud, crossed many shallow streams and detoured around several ponds and small lakes. Eventually, many spears called a halt. We must return to camp and tell the tribe, he said, his face grim. All the hunters' faces were serious and worried as they started back. Minnow's legs were aching before they were halfway to their camp and actually shook with tiredness by the time they arrived shortly before sunset. He found his mother and two sisters sewing rabbit hides into jackets at their sleeping spot in the roundhouse. Take off those filthy wraps, said Thistleleaf to her son. I will wash them. Yes, said Acorn, as she and Sparrow giggled and made faces at their older brother. You look like a mudman. Minnow pretended to scowl at them as he stripped and changed into an old tattered pair of leggings his mother tossed to him. How went the hunt? Thistleleaf asked. Minnow's face fell. We saw no mammoths, he said. Perhaps other hunting parties had better luck, said Thistleleaf. But later that night, as the tribe sat around the central fire in the middle of the roundhouse, and the oldest hunters described what they had seen, Minnow's sense of dismay only grew. There are no mammoths this season, said Ribbreaker. And last season there were very few mammoths, fewer than the season before. And the season before that there were fewer than the season before the season before that. There are always fewer mammoths than in seasons before, said Many Spears. It has always been so. But this season is different, said Ribbreaker. This season all the mammoths have gone. And they have all gone because there is no grass for them to eat. And there is no grass for them to eat because the ground has become soft and muddy with too much water. And there is too much water because the land is warmer and the great ice mountains are melting. This we can all see for ourselves, said Many Spears. Why is the land warmer? That we cannot see. Minnow, who had noticed all of these things but hadn't put them together, was still puzzling about the mud, the water, and the warmth when old Firemaker, 
the oldest man in the tribe and their spirit talker, raised his grey head from where he was gazing into the fire. The land is warmer, said Firemaker, because the spirits of the mammoth ask their mother, the sun, to melt the ice because we have not shown them the respect they are due. How have we not shown them respect? asked Minnie Spears. By talk of abandoning mammoth hunting, said old Firemaker, looking stern, by talking of hunting the elk instead of mammoths. All the hunters glowered at Ribbreaker, who sat defiantly, cross-legged in the inner circle nearest the fire. We only spoke of this when there were no mammoths, said Ribbreaker, looking directly into the faces of the hunters gathered around the fire. Tusk Dancer spat into the flames. Careful, said Ribbreaker, or you'll put it out. The hunters laughed, the tension eased, and they continued talking and making plans. By this time, Minnow was having trouble keeping his eyes open. Come, said his mother, putting a hand on his shoulder. It is time to sleep. Soon Minnow was rolled up in a sleeping fur, next to the softly breathing twin mounds of acorn and sparrow. Tomorrow, he thought, tomorrow he would find Mammoth. In the morning, amid the bustle of taking down the roundhouse, rolling up the giant mammoth-hide walls, and tying everything into the dragging frames for the day's march, Minnow and Squirrel joined Minnie Spear's hunting party. They left the camp and headed west at a fast jog, or at least as fast as they could manage in the sucking mud. They kept to their pace until they reached country they had not yet seen. Then many spears sent the hunters in twos and threes to scout in different directions in search of mammoth. You and you, many spears pointed to Minnow and Squirrel, will come with me. Thrilled at being picked to join the hunt leader, Minnow walked over beside him, standing up straight and puffing out his chest. Squirrel joined him, shaking his head at Minnow's posturing. It's an honour, Minnow said to his friend. Squirrel smirked at this and said, He just doesn't trust us to scout on our own yet. Ah, oh, said Minnow, instantly deflating. Good luck, mighty hunters, Ribbreaker called to them as he and Tusk Dancer headed northward on their own search. May your first kill not be a rabbit, he grinned widely. Or a squirrel. Minnow scowled, but Squirrel only grinned and shook his spear after the other two hunters as they laughed and walked away. Many spears finished assigning scouting duties and turned to Minnow and Squirrel. Now is a good time to practice silence, he said. Minnow and Squirrel nodded, exchanging grins when many spears turned his back to them. As usual, he carried a large bundle of spears across his back. They started off, Minnow and Squirrel walking behind him, their own spears held over their shoulders. They headed southwest. This part of the land was slightly less swampy, with more small rolling hills. Here the grass only lay flat instead of being drowned in mud. As they climbed each hill, they looked in all directions, trying to spot a distant herd of mammoths but all they saw was more soggy grass and occasional small groves of trees. Many spears led them through each grove to see what, if anything, might be hiding within. Do you think we'll see any fang cats? Minnow asked at one point. 
Only if we see elk, deer or caribou, said many spears. But fan-cats do not want to face men. They have learned to respect our spears. Remember what I've taught you. They had reached the top of another small hill, and from there saw three separate groves of trees. Many spears gazed at each grove, glanced up at the sun, then eyed Minnow and Squirrel in turn. Minnow stood up straight, trying to look as tall, competent and dependable as he could. Finally, many spears grunted and said, We will each inspect one grove. I will take that one, he pointed to the one in the middle. You, there, he gestured Squirrel to the northernmost grove. And you, there, he pointed Minnow to the grove furthest to the south. After giving them a few more instructions, Many Spears strode off towards his own central grove. Minnow and Squirrel paused only a moment to exchange an excited glance. Then they trotted towards their own groves. Within ten heartbeats, Many Spears and Squirrel were lost to Minnow's sight. He walked steadily towards his grove, climbing several small hills that lay between him and the trees. As he topped one hill, he spied the herd of red elk. They were scattered over the next hill and the dip in the land between them. Minnow tried to count them, but after he reached a hand of hands, he stopped. There were many. The healthy, well-fed animals browsed the soggy grass, reaching down and pulling up mouthfuls of limp stalks. Then they stood chewing green strands hanging from the sides of their mouths as their jaws worked. Deciding to skirt around the herd, Minnow carefully worked his way over the surrounding hillocks and through the dips between them. Then he circled one last hill. That's when he came upon the fang cat. Like Minnow, the fang cat was watching the elk herd. It lay in a fold of ground, peeking over the top at one elderly cow elk closest to him. The fang cat slowly turned its head and looked straight at Minnow. It yawned, its mouth opening impossibly wide. Its two fangs descended from its upper jaw, sharp, deadly, and looking as long as Minnow's arm. Minnow's pulse slammed inside his ears, neck and hands. Do not run, many spears instructions echoed in Minnow's head. He stood still. Do not look the fang cat in the eye. The memory of many spears teachings came to him, one by one. Minnow lifted his arms over his head, trying to look as big as possible, while staring beyond the fan cat towards the elk herd. He held the spear in both hands, pointing towards the huge cat, which stared at him without blinking. Then the cat slipped over the fold of earth, moving like melted mammoth fat, pouring over the lip of a clay jug, and was gone. Minnow stood still, waiting, his heartbeat pounding. With a blur of motion, the fan-cat rushed into the herd. One elk gave a barking call, but not soon enough. The fan-cat slammed a paw into the neck of the cow-elk it had been watching, tore her neck open, and she dropped. As the rest of the herd scattered, the fan-cat picked up the dead elk in its enormous jaws and carried it off without any apparent effort. Minnow remained in place, breathing slowly, waiting for the blood to stop fizzling in his veins. Once his heart slowed down to its normal rhythm, he continued onward. Soon he approached the grove. He circled around it to enter it upwind. 
Stepping into the trees, he sniffed the faint breeze, trying to detect any animal smells. A strong aroma of musk and wet wool filled his nose. His skin prickled, and he slowed to a silent creep. He had smelled mammoth many times. There could be no mistaking it. Minnow slowed even more, his heart fluttering with wild excitement. He must not scare the mammoths away. Nothing would be worse than him spooking the mammoth herd so that it fled out of range of the tribe. But he had to see them. He had to be able to count them and report if it was a herd of two hands or four hands or more. He took another step, then one more. There. His heartbeat slowed. His excitement faded. Slowly he turned his head, his gaze probing among the trees, searching, but not finding. At least, not finding any more mammoths other than the ones that stood in the centre of the grove, maybe thirty paces away, beyond a thin screen of trees. There were three of them. One elderly female, one small younger female, and one newborn calf. Minnow slowly squatted behind a tree, his dismay rising as he stared. What was wrong with the two adult mammoths? Instead of a thick layer of fat bulging under their skin, it hung loose and baggy over their legs and ribs. And they weren't eating. Why weren't they eating? Every time Minnow had seen mammoths before, they were almost constantly eating. They would wind their trunks around a thick clump of grass, pull it out with a loud ripping sound and stuff the whole clump in their constantly chewing jaws. But not these two. They stood quietly, not moving, both thinner than any mammoth Minnow had ever seen. Why? Then Minnow realised that there was no dry grass, no thick clumps standing tall. All the grass was soggy, limp and lying flat. There was nothing for the mammoths to grasp and stuff into their mouths. What the elk could eat so easily, the mammoths couldn't eat at all. As Minnow realised this, the calf nuzzled its head under its mother's belly, making loud grunting noises. They were replaced by sucking sounds. While Minnow watched the calf nurse, the older female mammoth reached her trunk upwards, grasped a leafy tree branch and tore it down. Then she held it in front of the mother mammoth. While her calf fed, the mother slowly plucked leaves from the branch and carried them to her mouth. Leaf by leaf, she stripped the branch bare. Then the older mammoth tore down another branch, and another. At one point, the mother took the branch from the older female and tried to hold it for her companion, but the older mammoth snatched it back and shook it in front of the mother, until she began to eat again. Why didn't the old one eat? She must be as hungry as the mother. Minnow tried to suppress the pity that was growing in his heart for these scrawny mammoths. He couldn't imagine hunting them. What kind of name could he even earn? Skeleton slayer? Calf killer? No thanks. Minnow rose to his feet. Slowly, making no sound, he backtracked out of the trees. Outside the grove, Minnow stood for a moment, worrying over what he had seen. But no matter what, he had to join many spears and squirrel. He climbed the nearest hill and had just reached the top when his eyes caught movement. Far to the north, the edge of the ice mountains appeared to collapse. 
even as he watched. Great sheets of brilliant white slid off the far distant ice mountains and fell slowly and silently amid great puffs of white plumes rising into the air. Minnow gaped in awe as the white clouds rose higher. Twenty heartbeats later, the ground shook. A constant rolling thunder rolled over him. It was as if the spirits of the ice were bellowing in anger. Minnow stood rigid, too afraid to move. The roar went on and on. It grew louder. The ground shook harder. Were the spirits of the ice angry? At him? Finally the ground stopped shaking. The thundering dropped to a rumble, then to a murmur. That's when the wind hit him. With a sudden howl it knocked him over. It tore at his face in fur wraps. Shrieking, it stung his eyes so that he had to squint them shut. Coming from the north, it overcame the faint southerly wind. Minnow stiffened. What if it blew his scent towards the mammoths? As the wind died, he scrambled to his feet, his furs soaked and heavy. He turned to look down the hill, back to his grove of trees. Sure enough, he was just in time to see the two adult mammoths striding out of the grove, heading south, half prodding, half carrying the calf between them in their hurry. Minnow slumped and turned away. Fear, relief and disappointment fought for space in his head. Spotting the other two groves in the distance, he started off to rejoin many spears and squirrel. As Minnow trudged up and down the hills towards their meeting place, his thoughts roiled like a fast-moving river. The tribe might still catch up with the three mammoths, but only if Minnow told what he had seen. Should he tell? The more Minnow thought about it, the more sure he was that old Firemaker was wrong. Hunting an elderly mammoth, a nursing mother, and her calf would not show them respect. That was the message of the ice spirits. That was why they had warned the mammoths. That was why they had spoken to him, Minnow, and shown him the red elk. Minnow straightened his shoulders. Ribbreaker was right. From now on, they would have to depend more on hunting elk, deer, and caribou, and the tribe would have to grant equal status to those who hunted them. Minnow spotted many spears and squirrel waiting for him on top of the next hill. They faced north, staring at the melting ice mountains. Minnow climbed up to join them. He reached the top of the hill and stood beside many spears and squirrel, looking northward, watching the falling ice, watching the spirits speak, watching the time of mammoths come to an end. And there you go. Big, huge thank you to Rudy. Rudy, thank you so much. What a, what a great story. Excellent story. And done. Very nice, lad. Very nice indeed. Still- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Still got it. Still got it. So next is... Our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. And today I'd like to sort of wander around a particular thematic topic that has been on my mind, and I'll explain why it's been on my mind. It is a very science fictional topic, and that is the theme of the time slip. Now, first of all, before I dive into the time slip as a theme, I want to acknowledge that there are science fiction works entitled Time Slip. I won't give you an exhaustive list here, just a couple of illustrative examples. One example of a time slip work is the film Time Slip, made, I think in 1955, but it was shortened and re-released in 1956. It was called Time Slip in the UK, but retitled The Atomic Man when it was distributed in the United States. The premise of that work, the science fiction thriller film, is that an atomic scientist was technically dead for seven and a half seconds. He dies while doctors are operating on him to get a bullet out of his back. When he revives, he perceives the world exactly seven and a half seconds in the future. So, for example, he answers questions before they are asked. The scientist and his girlfriend try to solve what happened like why he was shot in the first place, and what the time slip of seven and a half seconds means. And in so doing, they uncover an international spy ring. Interestingly enough, the script for this film was by Charles Eric Main. That's the science fiction pen name of David McElwain, who wrote detective thrillers under the pen names of Richard Rayner and Robert Wade and published a number of science fiction works, more than a dozen novels in the 1950s and 1960s, as Charles Eric Main. Well, after the film came out, Main then turned the storyline into the novel The Isotope Man, which was then published in 1957. The first of several novels of his to feature the character of reporter Mike Delaney. Okay, so that's the film Time Slip. Now, another example of a science fiction work called Time Slip is a British children's science fiction television series made by ATV for the ITV network. 
This was broadcast in 1970 and 1971. This show focused on two children who discover a strange anomaly called the time barrier at a military base that's no longer in use. And this time barrier lets them move in time, going backwards to visit the past as well as forwards to alternative futures, and through space, too, not just time. So, for example, in one storyline, they move to one version of the Antarctic 20 years in the future, even though they start out in Britain. In the first episode of The Time of the Icebox, which is the second arc of episodes within the series, Peter Fairley, who was at the time a real-life British science journalist, he was the science editor for Independent Television News and TV Times Magazine, he introduces the idea like this. So I'm quoting from the Time Slip TV series. Quote, what is a time bubble? You can't see it, of course, but it might help you visualize it to think of a balloon. Supposing some little patch of information, some little patch of history, gets slowed down, and instead of flashing backwards and forwards, it floats, gently, as if in a bubble. Supposing you could get into that bubble, that bubble of history, and travel with it. Then you could move forwards and backwards in time at will. End quote. So there you have it from Time Slip, the TV series. I'm tempted here to mention the Tenth Doctor's quote from Doctor Who, the episode Blink, describing, you know, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. Okay, so the idea of the time slip was on my mind, and I naturally went to my go-to source, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, which is now online at sf-encyclopedia.com, and looked up time slip as a theme. And the entry, which is by David Langford and Jonathan Clements, defines it this way, quote, time travel need not employ the specific technological focus of a time machine. Rather than deal with a machine's theory and construction or such consequences of its, or a time gate's, repeated use as time paradoxes, many authors prefer to stipulate a, quote, natural, end quote, usually one-off accident that affects whatever time transfer the story requires. In this encyclopedia's terminology, the device is referred to as a time slip. It is popular, especially in fantasy, for its narrative economy, minimizing SF explanation and proceeding directly to the story. The avoidance of overt SF trappings has likewise made the theme especially attractive to mainstream writers of SF." End quote. Now, the first work I think of when I consider the theme of a time transfer that really doesn't get a lot of technological explanation, that's Octavia Butler's novel Kindred from 1979, in which a young writer in Los Angeles in 1976 experiences time slips back to a 19th century Maryland plantation. The novel isn't about the mechanism by which the time travel happens. That's really not the point. It's about exploring antebellum slavery through the eyes of a black woman in the late 20th century. 
The first chapters of the novel were also adapted for Hulu in 2022, and the contemporary setting was updated by 40 years to make the modern part of the story more relevant, more, well, modern. Now, that wasn't a one-off. That was multiple time slips, but it does seem relevant to the topic. There are, of course, much earlier examples of this kind of storytelling that fit the bill from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. In other words, earlier examples of the, look, the time travel happened, don't get hung up on the how, let's focus on what it means kind of tale. For example, the hero is sent back to the past due to, let's see, the impact of a crowbar in Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court from 1889, which, you guessed it, sends a Connecticut Yankee to King Arthur's Court. Or an earthquake, as in J. Leslie Mitchell's Three Go Back from 1932, in which passengers on an airship go back in time 25,000 years to encounter Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals. Or, say, a lightning bolt in El Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall from 1941, which sends an American archaeologist who is visiting the Pantheon in Rome in 1939 back to the Rome of 535, so almost a thousand years. All that's to say that the concept has a tradition around it. And now I hope you'll let me share why the time slip has been on my mind. I mentioned in my last Looking Back on Genre History segment that I've just had the delight of teaching Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House from 1959. If you've read the novel, you may recall the suggestion of time slips in it, most effectively in one very memorable picnic scene. And as I was looking into Shirley Jackson's inspirations for her work, she drew on a lot of text to build her story, from reports of the Society for Psychical Research to traditional murder ballads. One source caught my attention, and I wanted to share it with you. In 1911, two women educators, Charlotte and Elizabeth Moberly, who lived from 1846 to 1937, and Eleanor Frances Jourdain, who lived from 1863 to 1924, both of whom were principals at one time or another of St. Hugh's College, Oxford. Well, these two women published a book entitled An Adventure. Now, they published it under the names of Elizabeth Morrison and Frances Lamont. Their real identities weren't exposed until decades later. The book describes a visit they made to the Petit Trianon, a small chateau on the grounds of the Palace of Versailles. Small, you know, in comparison to <laughs> Versailles. And they were tourists there. While both were educated women, they were not specialists in French history. They were there just as tourists, walking around the grounds. And in an adventure, they claimed to have experienced something. It's fascinating. If you're interested, I recommend looking up what's now called the Moberly-Jourdain incident. They claimed to have experienced something that might be considered... Well, a residual haunting 
an echo of history, or perhaps a time slip. They encountered unexpected scenes and people, and after comparing notes, they didn't even admit at the time to each other what was happening. They only realized later that each had also experienced the same thing. They did historical research, they revisited the grounds, they thought about this a long time and wrote separate accounts and compared them, and they came to the conclusion that they had experienced the same place, but more than a century before. In fact, they claimed to have seen the gardens around the chateau as they had been in the late 18th century, as well as individuals who were there then, including Marie Antoinette and others. As you might imagine, the story caused a sensation. And since then, generations of researchers have gone back to the text, have investigated the story. Experts in everything from physics to psychology, trying to unpack what really happened. Did the women hallucinate? Were they confused from simply being lost? Did they encounter visitors in costume who were there for parties, which were held there at the time, themed historical parties? Were they just misinterpreting, essentially, cosplay for reality? Or did something else happen, something like a real-life time slip? An Adventure is in the Public Domain. A free ebook version is available at Project Gutenberg, and a free audiobook version is available from LibriVox.org. Here is the Wikipedia-sourced summary that LibriVox uses for its audiobook version. Quote, The Moberly-Jourdain incident was an event that occurred on 10 August 1901 in the gardens of the Petit Trianon, involving two female academics— Charlotte Anne Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. The women were both from educated backgrounds. During a trip to Versailles, they visited the Petit Trianon, a small chateau in the grounds of the Palace of Versailles, where they allegedly experienced a time slip and saw Marie Antoinette, as well as other people of the same period. After researching the history of the palace and comparing notes of their experience, they published their work in a book entitled An Adventure, under the names of Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont in 1911. Their story caused a sensation and was subject to much ridicule, end quote. Now, I am personally not here to posit any explanations for this story. I have visited the Palace of Versailles and the Petit Trianon, and I experienced nothing except good old-fashioned awe. But what I find fascinating is that it's a kind of choose-your-own-adventure text. You can read it as a memoir, as a paranormal report, as fiction. Shirley Jackson herself did not get caught up trying to prove or disprove it when she read it. She used it to make her own art. She herself didn't believe in ghosts, or at least that's what she repeatedly said, but she loved ghost stories for what they told us about human nature. And in her notes, made during the writing of The Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson refers to an adventure as, quote, one of the greatest ghost stories of all time, end quote. I think it's no coincidence that we see 
time slips in The Haunting of Hill House. So if you want to science this work and adventure, that is, analyze it and explain what did or didn't happen and why, go for it. And if you wish to read the work as a science fictional time slip story, hey, you do you. It has retained a powerful hold on the imagination of readers, that's for sure. Interestingly enough, an adventure is still in the public dialogue today. As I record this in February 2024, the paranormal podcast Astonishing Legends has just completed a two-part deep dive in their episodes 275 and 276 called The Ghosts of Versailles, specifically about the moberly Jourdain incident and the writing of An Adventure. So if you want to search for any free downloadable version of the text or recent hard copy versions, the real names of the authors have been restored. So look for An Adventure from 1911 by Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. And that, my friend, is my wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey wandering around the notion of the time slip. I hope you have found something in here of interest to you. And I look forward to joining you again soon for something completely different when we get together to take another look back on genre history. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my voice goes and everything. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you so much for just doing this. Thank you indeed. So that is Starship Silver's, what number is it? 726, put to bed. Listen, support, well, that would be fantastic. I think we've been doing this about 70 bloody years, you know what I mean? be nice if you can kind of support our Patreon or just pop over the front of the website. That would be fantastic. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Until next time, I'd just like to say good night from me. Thank you, guys. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I move slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Thank you.
I'd be on my way. If I could catch myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 